Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Buscher. And today we're joined by Professor Sarah Smith from the University of Bristol. Sarah specialises in public and applied microeconomics research. She's also the current chair of the Royal Economic Society Women's Committee. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So can you just, first of all, just tell us a little bit about the Women's Committee and what the mission of that is? Sure. So uh, the Women's Committee is a committee of the Royal Economic Society. It was set up to promote the status of women in economics. So recognising that women are underrepresented, not only in academic departments, but also more broadly across the disciplines, also in government economists and professional economists. So we have a number of activities to try and promote the status of uh, women in economics. We run uh, biennial surveys uh, looking at the representation of women in academic economic departments. So we survey economics departments and kind of we, f- we get uh, data on the share of women at different levels, so the share who are um, lecturers and readers and professors. And we've been tracking this over 20 years and looking at, you know, how uh, women's representation economics has, has been evolving. And we can talk a bit about that later. Uh, we also run mentoring for junior uh, women. So, you know, in a discipline where women are a minority there's a concern that you know junior women might not have appropriate kind of mentors within their own department so we offer mentoring in terms of getting published getting research grants teaching you know to to try and provide networks and support for junior women Um, we also represent women in the business of the Royal Economic Society so giving sort of women a voice in the in the RES and then finally, something that I'm really interested in is trying to reach out, um, particularly to kind of like school children and, um, you know, girls and and kind of try and get people into economics right at the bottom. Because, you know, if you look at um, the state of economics, it's not just that there aren't any women in academic departments. It's not just there aren't any women in the government economic service, there just aren't any women or girls in economics anywhere. It's sort of across the board. So, you know, I think longer term, if we want to solve this problem, we really have to be increasing the proportion of girls who are studying economics at A-level and uh, studying it at university. So that's something I think I'm sort of increasingly interested in. Yeah, I think that's something we'll get into later in the program. Uh, uh, and, and just sort of taking it back a little bit. Uh, this is, this is, I mean, this is very interesting. It's interesting that obviously things, uh, concepts like the gender pay gap and gender differences in the labor market are, are, are fairly mainstream these days. We, you know, there's constantly news reports, BBC headline, you know, gender pay gap hasn't moved for X years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and a lot of that work is being done by economists. And, and, and I guess the question here, which you've kind of already answered is, you know, are we sort of guilty of really not looking at ourselves here? Do we, does our profession, not just academics, but economists in general, have a problem with gender issues? And, and as just as, a, as an extreme example, I could look at, for example, the Nobel Prizes. You know, if we look at the number of women who've won the Nobel Prize, you know, it's a very small proportion. It's about 5% of all Nobel Prizes. And if we look at the Nobel Prize in economics, only one woman has only ever won a Nobel Prize. So are we sort of just quite guilty ourselves? Well, yeah, as you've talked talk about a lot of different issues there. But starting with the Nobel Prizes, yeah, I think... Um, you know, it's it's quite shocking, really, that there's just one Nobel Prize winner out of, uh, you know, I think 80 uh, Nobel Prize winners in economics. So, you know, we've also only had one female president of the Royal Economic Society. So Rachel Griffith will be the second president. But, you know, it's it's sending a signal, I think, when there are so few women at the very top of the discipline. And it's reinforcing the absence of kind of women across the board. So you asked if uh, economics sort of has a problem um, with women. Does the profession have a problem with women? 
So increasingly, the evidence is suggesting that, yes, we do. So, you know, we've been well aware for a long time that there aren't very many women in STEM subjects. Mm. But, you know, those disciplines seem to be seem to have been much more engaged with the issue for longer. They've been working harder to promote women. I think things are changing within economics, but there really hasn't been much of a movement across the discipline to try and, you know, promote economics to women and to try and sort of change the situation. So as I said, I think there are signs of an increased interest in, you know, gender gaps in economics, but it's only really happening now. So if I think, you know, if we think about the way economists think about the world, you know, you can kind of see perhaps why economists don't recognize this as a big problem. So economists think about individuals making choices. They think about those choices being based on preferences. And I think they've been all too quick to, you know, see the gender balance as a sort of natural outcome of differences in preferences. So you hear, you know, women just don't like economics or another argument you hear, economics is very mathematical, perhaps it's just too difficult for women. So on the latter of those, we can certainly dismiss that. You know, we now have more women studying maths than, you know, as a share than we have studying economics. So I really don't think it's the maths that's holding women back. And aren't Um, girls better at maths than boys anyway these days? Like when, if we look at school results, I think generally girls tend to do better than boys in quite a lot of those subjects. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly the, it's certainly the case that the kind of the, the the absence of maths doesn't explain, uh, Mm. you know, why girls don't study economics. So you can kind of condition, yet girls are less likely to take maths than boys. But that maths gap can't explain the economics gap. And in terms of preferences, I think, you know, I think we have to question, you know, where those preferences come from. You know, why do so few girls and women choose economics? Is it really, you know, those preferences are formed with perfect information? Might there be some kind of, you know, I think as economists, we could probably quite easily think of some market failures that might explain why so few girls and women choose economics. So, for example, work that we've been doing has looked at, you know, where economics is taught in schools, and it's much more likely to be taught to boys than girls. It's not a subject that's taught in all schools. So, you know, there there clearly is a, is a kind of, you know, a market failure that might lead us to kind of be concerned about the number of girls or women studying economics because, you know, it's basically just not in the infam- it's not in the choice sets of kind of lots of people. So I think, you know, we really have to challenge that what we see across the discipline is the outcome of, you know, everybody's sort of optimal choices. And I think we have to think about some of the underlying problems and tackle those if we kind of want to determine things in, in, in the longer run. It's an interesting question. Where do you think the problem comes from? Is it a kind of a school-based issue? Is that really sort of at the crux of all of this? Or is there sort of a kind of an access issue once you are, uh, let's take academic economists, you know, once you are a woman and you do enter the system, uh, perhaps it is somehow, I don't want to say discriminatory, but it's much more difficult for women to, to work their way up the ladder and through the ladder, and then perhaps they drop off early. So, yeah, no, I think there are different issues at each stage. There's an idea in behavioral economics called identity economics, right? So we make decisions based not only on our preferences, but also on, you know, some idea of what conforms to our identity. So, you know, I think we could go as far as saying that economics has a male identity. And I think that kind of like runs across the entire sort of discipline, the choices people make, right from choosing to study at A-level through to, you know, how the work of kind of men and women is, is, is perceived. But clearly, in terms of tackling the problem, you need to kind of look at the issues at each stage and think about, you know, how best to overcome them. So, yeah, so you mentioned problems in, you know, issues in people not taking economics as a, as a, as a degree subject. So there, I think the issues are around 
the subject not being taught in schools. So, you know, economics A-level is growing in popularity, but it's growing more among boys than girls. And part of that is an access issue about uh, which schools it's taught in. I think another. I think it's also about young people's and uh, wider public perceptions of what economics is about. So you know that's a, that's a real issue. So you know we've been asking fifteen to seventeen year olds, you know, what do you think economics is about? And basically, you know, the answer is it's about money, right? So you know, again, uh, economists are very happy to think about people making choices in line with their preferences. But if everybody thinks that economics is a subject that is about money, they're not making you know the the right choice because that's a you know that's clearly a misperception of what economics is about. This is something that I was just thinking when you talk about economics as this male identity. It probably has a money identity as well, exactly, and, and particularly amongst not just girls, but I suppose it's kind of almost a double whammy that it has this male identity and also within that it has this identity that it's all about our finance and business and exchange rates and this sort of thing, which are all pretty dull. Well, they're not, they're, I mean, they're not dull. They're just narrow. They're dull. I think. <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay. I wouldn't say they're right. dull, but they but are they're, narrow. They're not so exciting. When actually, when you think about the things that economics is actually about, really, it's about people's behavior and going about their lives and the choices that they make and all sorts of areas. We've mm-hmm. spoken quite a lot, different economists, when talk about sports economics and the economics of crime and uh, these are things where you wouldn't initially think these are areas of economics but actually if we were to tell students this is what economics is about it would be a lot more um, attractive I think and, and, and people would be a lot more interested particularly girls but boys as well. Yeah no I, I mean I completely believe that um, you know so we can't you know we can't definitively link you know if we were to tell students this then then it would change who selected but you know we know that economics is attracting a narrow group of people I mean actually it's not only an absence of girls it's also you know an absence of people from kind of like lower socioeconomic groups as well so privately educated students are way overrepresented in the undergraduate population so you know it's not that we're just you know we really are you know sort of over appealing to a very narrow segment of the population. And I think, yeah, I think that's a real problem. I mean, it's kind of, very, you know, I'm ahead of uh, economics. We're trying to, you know, in an increasingly competitive environment, we're trying to sell our subjects, right? And it's very easy in economics to kind of go, you know, look at the amount that you can earn when you study economics, which is all due to the fact that lots of people who do study economics go into finance, go into, you know, work as analysts. And that's great. And we don't want to lose that. But we also want to make sure we're telling people that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant subject for understanding the world around you, for tackling climate change, for dealing with inequality, for understanding the choices that people make. And I think we need to, we need to do more to try and communicate that to people. I don't think we're really doing that at the moment. I, I mean, just going from my own past experiences, I studied economics at A-level, which was quite dry. And then uh, I almost didn't choose it at university. And again, at university, I must say the first and second year were, again, quite dry. A lot of theory, a lot of basic 101 type stuff, you know, your ISLM models and et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't until the third year that the interesting things started to come out, things like labor economics, things like, you know, environmental economics. Uh, I mean, as I'm sure you know, there is work to try and change the way economics is taught in the first year. So the core curriculum, which, you know, Wendy Carlin and others have been, you know, driving forward, that's a completely different way to teaching economics in the first year. And I think that's really exciting. And I think that type of approach to teaching economics 
should have much broader appeal. I think the problem is, you know, you can only teach to the people who turn up. You can only talk about what you're going to teach to the people who attend your open day, at, you know, at university. And we, if, if, if economics isn't in people's choice sets because it's perceived as being a male subject about money, the problem is sort of it, it's how to get people to even think about studying economics when, you know, for... For most girls, you know, an economist is a man crunching numbers, right? And that's not someone they're going to identify with. And so, you know, they're not going to they're not going to come along and, and be open to thinking about studying I economics. I that, you know, the intervention needs to start taking place earlier, around 14, 16, where you need to start giving pupils who are still thinking about their GCSEs because obviously they're very strong route into A-levels which then restrict your choice set to university a lot yeah. and it's like in the flavours because yeah. I can't remember so, there's an economics GCSE. I mean we can start a little bit later yeah. you know as far as I'm aware no university requires you to have studied A-level economics to do economics at university so we can you know we can target people who are choosing uh, which subject to study at university and it's you know we can we can certainly talk to them about economics at that point. So that's something that the Royal Economic Society is now doing. So it made money available to universities to run outreach events with local schools. So that's something we've been doing in Bristol, trying to give a much broader impression of, of economics to, you know, a bunch of kids from local schools, you know, talking to them about the gender pay gap, talking to them about, you know, fairness in taxation, talking to them about the issues that we think matter, you know, not about money or investment. I think, you know, longer term, it would be fantastic if all schools taught economics and we could encourage more people to take economics at A-level. But that's a big ask. Uh, you know, if you look at the schools that teach economics, it's taught in almost all private boys' schools. Um, it's taught in around half of state schools. So if we encourage people to take it at A-level, that's not the solution for everyone. So, you know, we have to reach out to schools that don't offer economics as well as encouraging people to take it for A-level. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, though, Universities don't require you to have taken A-level economics in order to study economics at yes. degree level. So even if we do get more students doing A-level economics, it may raise interest, but it wouldn't necessarily give them the the qualifications to then be able to go and access the top courses? Uh, no, I mean, so so typically, you know, the top courses require maths, not economics. But, you know, interestingly, across the board, you can see in the data that economics A-level is the main route currently into right. studying economics at university. So more people who study economics at university have done economics A-level than have done maths A-level, which is sort of, I don't think that's something that people at universities have been aware of that actually, you know, they, we, we need to kind of be thinking about who's studying economics A-level and reaching out to people who aren't studying economics A-level because it's clear from the data that, you know, there's a strong link between A-level choice and university choice. So that means, you know, as I said, that puts a real onus on us to try and reach out to schools. I think, you know, I think we haven't done enough of that. And I think given the state of, you know, the narrowness of the, you know, people flowing into undergraduate economics. I think it's something that universities need to do more of. Just going back to what, something that you said earlier, that this is some sort of, you know, it's, it's not just about gender, actually, the diversity aspect is bigger, there's sort of, you know, BMEs, there's sort of, you know, family or social background access, and that, you know, at the moment, it does appear to be that, you know, economists tend to be predominantly sort of white, male, privately educated from a sort of well-off family. My understanding is that, just going back to the women issue, that actually, whilst on the one side you can say that, okay, perhaps it's not that good for economists, one third of, you know, academic economists are women, but if you go back to the past, you know, 20 years ago, that, that, that was half of that. So actually, substantial changes have happened in the profession, 
And maybe now it's time to sort of look at other issues like BME and sort of access uh, from social background. I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it depends what you think the optimal proportion of women is. I don't know. I mean, I think I, I, I find the fact that we're sort of lagging behind STEM, I think, you know, and, and I think I don't think we've pushed hard enough. And I think there's, you know, I think there's still more that can be done. So. For sure, gender isn't the only issue, but I do think, you know, it's, it is an important dimension in which I think the profession is underrepresented. And I think when we look at some of what's going on within academic economics, I think we increasingly are becoming aware of barriers to women progressing within academic economics that's, and that's differences in the way men and women are treated. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that we're there in terms of sort of, you know, equality within, within uh, the discipline. And I would certainly think there's a lot more that we could be doing. That's interesting because I think 35% of lecturers, so the kind of more junior level academics uh, in economics are women, 35%. But when you get to the professor level, it's like 15%. Now, that has increased. Both of those numbers have increased, but there's still quite a gap between them. That's still only 15% of, of all professors in economics are women. Uh, so it alludes to, I guess, that level of, okay, we need to get more women to study economics and get more women to become academic economists. Uh, but you enter at the junior level, and then there's some, although that's been going up, we've been getting more uh, female economists as lecturers but that progression I guess it will take time for that increase in lecturers to then feed through but it sounds like you're saying there's also yeah. kind of a blockage you know so that even just increasing lecturers isn't going to filter up to the yeah. higher levels yeah so I mean so I mean the, the the figures for the UK are kind of really quite similar to those in the US you know in terms of the shares of women at different levels um so, you know, we've tracked the aggregate statistics in the UK. In the US, they've actually looked at, you know, the sort of the individual level of analysis to kind of think about, you know, individual women sort of and individual men kind of, you know, going through the uh, academic career process and their chances of kind of making it to a higher level. Um, and they've, you know, those studies have identified that women are less likely to progress um, in economics than men and the situation is worse than in STEM subjects and it's worse than in social sciences. So it seems as though economics is kind of uniquely problematic in terms of, you know, equal opportunities for men and women to progress. You know, in terms of like progression within academia, you have to care a lot about kind of the, the, the productivity, the quality of publications, you know, so ma making sure you're comparing like with like, you know, these studies have really attempted to do that and found that, you know, even conditional on productivity, um, there, you know, women just aren't progressing, they aren't moving through from, you know, assistant to uh, full professors to nearly the same extent as, as, as men are. Do you think there is there is this inherent discrimination still within a strong sense of discrimination? I mean, there's that study by Heather Sarsons uh, about the kind of the value of citations if you're a woman or if you're a man. And uh, I mean, we're all academics here and we know that our career progression is quite strongly correlated with that kind of publication with our research output. I mean, there's other elements to it, but certainly that counts for a lot. And if that is valued less for a woman, that smacks to me as a, as a real fundamental problem in our entire sort of, you know, career progression route. Yeah, I mean, I, I found, so I saw that uh, research being presented at the AA meetings. I found it really quite shocking, you know. I think it was a very powerful piece of research um, and a very depressing piece of research. So so what she found, uh, I mean, obviously, so in economics, people co-author, you know, you co-author with people who are more senior, more junior, with men, with women. So what she found was that uh, men and women were equally likely to co-author 
but that when women co-authored with men, those publications appeared not to count for their progression. So it's basically saying, you know, someone's looking at a CV, seeing a publication of a woman co-authored with a man and discounting it, discounting that woman's contribution. And that is possible because, you know, for sure our progression is dependent on our research outputs, but it's, that's not a science. There's a high degree of subjective evaluation, you know, in terms of people writing reports. And those, you know, those reports are going to be influenced by subjective opinions. And it's kind of suggesting, you know, those, the contribution of the women to those papers um, was diminished. So I have heard some people try and critique Heather's work and kind of saying, well, you know, maybe the women didn't present the work as much. But to think that that is any, in any way an excuse for the fact that a you know, co-author publication is not counting for a woman? No. I mean, you know, maybe there are legitimate reasons why women don't present so much. And if you have to present, you know, your opportunities to present are determined by your network, you know, maybe that women are given fewer opportunities to present. Yeah. So that paper and then the so-called smart comments about that paper both seem to reveal uh, some sort of like, uh, you know, issue with how the work of men and women, you know, I don't think it's explicit discrimination, but I think, you know, we, we know that there's implicit bias in a whole variety of different kind of labor market settings. And what we seem to be seeing here in economics is examples of implicit bias. So um, there's that paper by Heather Sarsons. There's also other work by... Erin Hengel about, you know, how long it takes women to get articles through journals and the fact that editors and referees seem to require a higher quality of work from from women uh, than they do from men. So there's sort of there's now a couple of studies showing it takes longer for women to get published. There's a bigger quality improvement in the work that women do as it goes through the publication process, suggesting that, you know, more is being demanded for them from them. And, you know, when these publications really matter for tenure, you know, any delay in getting those publications is going to hurt your chances of being promoted. So that's, you know, another worrying sign that women and men are not being treated in the same in the same way. Yeah, I think just to sort of for our listeners, I think, you know, we kind of under, uh, underemphasize or sorry, I should say overemphasize how important publications, especially in your early career, are for sort of, you know, getting on that career trajectory, that, that career ladder and, and sort of progressing through it. That absolutely. Is, you know, you can see why it might be particularly a problem in economics, because economics is, I think, much more hierarchical than other subjects in terms of how it values kind of quality of outputs. The kind of the top five academic journals in economics have, you know, increasingly large weight in terms of determining your sort of success or failure. So you sort of have a narrow set of gatekeepers, a very narrow focus in terms of what matters. And that's kind of creating a climate in which any implicit bias against women is really going to then affect chances of progression. So it's kind of creating like a perfect storm for these differences to kind of like matter. And, you know, I I think in that context, perhaps it's not so surprising that economics is kind of doing worse than STEM, where, you know, perhaps there are different ways, you know, to kind of like research success. It sounds like from what you're saying that we've got this problem that on the supply side, as we've talked about, there's not so many women studying economics and then going into academia. And then once there, there's all sorts of barriers and and gatekeepers and implicit biases working against. Can we learn from what STEM do differently? Are are there there practices that we can try and uh, bring in? Um, I mean, again, I think, you know, it's sort of different solutions to different problems. So certainly, I think we should be learning from STEM in terms of making women in economics an issue, right? They, you know, they, they... in terms of kind of outreach to school children, I think STEM have uh, been far ahead of us. And I think we need to sort of do a STEM in terms of recognizing this as being a problem and doing something about it. 
You know, I think within within universities, you know, talking to senior women in, say, chemistry, I think they sort of almost feel that they're sort of facing similar issues. That leaky pipeline in academia is a problem for them still. So, you know, addressing, you know, addressing implicit bias, you know, across the board in academia is going to that may be a wider issue where, you know, the problem perhaps goes beyond economics. I just think in economics, the narrowly defined way in which we define success is kind of really additionally harming kind of the the ability for women to progress. There is a nice paper by Amanda Bayer and Cecilia Rouse, which looks at this kind of issue for the United States, uh, where they talk a lot about a lot of the, the factors that we just talked about. And then they make some recommendations, which are essentially you know, revising how we teach economics to make them more attractive for women, uh, mentoring and pipeline programs to help sort of early career women, you know, uh, overcome these hurdles, uh, and also trying to reduce sort of institutional bias. Um, But as I was reading through this sort of, I didn't think that these were new ideas, right? To me, they seemed perfectly sensible ideas, but one we could have had 20 years ago, right? And and I'm just wondering, is this really enough? You know, is, is, you know, do we need more external pressure from, I'm thinking, you know, government regulation, or is there some other way, or is there something that can, because like you, having looked into this a little bit more, it is quite shocking, actually, I think, how, how much that's, you know, it is discrimination there is against women in our profession still at this point in time. So what do we do? Yeah, what do we do? What do we do? You know, do well, um, you know, I think it's hard to regulate against implicit bias. You know, that's so that's a mindset. Um, what I'd like people to do is to recognize that this is a problem. As you might be aware, Alice Wu, who is an MSc student, published again, you know, another quite shocking paper about gender differences in economics. So what she was doing was scraping the text from Uh, an online platform called Economic Job Market Rumours, which was initially supposed to be for information sharing about which jobs were where, what different universities were like. But it sort of seems to have become, you know, a place where people bitch about, you know, individuals or departments. Um, Anyway, so what she found was that the language used about women was, you know, it was incredibly derogatory and, you know, sort of sexually derogatory as well, you know, and the language used about men was, you know, it was not always pleasant, but not nearly on the same level. So, you know, what she revealed was that economists talking about men and women, they're talking about them really differently, you know. And I think it got a lot of coverage. And I think, you know, it's a, it was a wake-up call to some people. But, you know, again, it's been dismissed because it's just a small cesspit rather than being representative of the whole profession. So people have dismissed it. You know, what we really need to do is for people across the board to wake up and say, this is a problem and we need to recognise it's a problem. We need to recognise some of the reasons why it's occurring and, you know, try and overcome some of this implicit bias. You know, awareness of implicit bias, unconscious bias is really kind of the only way to address it. So, so I mean, it's clear that, you know, the problem is not equally recognised by men and women. So, you know, there have been some really interesting surveys done of attitudes of male and female economists. We think about economics being a science, but, you know, subjective opinion kind of really is quite important in economics. So, you know, you can have the same models, you can have the same evidence, you can reach different conclusions. Um, so, for example, male and female economists think differently about, you know, the whether governments should intervene or not. Male economists tend to be a bit more sympathetic to the free market. I think in uh, one of these surveys done of US economists, so 70% of women think that, you know, gender equality in economics is an issue. 20% of men do. So, you know, that's the problem there. And 
It's mainly women talking about the problem of women in economics. So, you know, most uh, conference sessions you go to, it's, you know, sort of 70% men, 30% women. When we run the RES conference sessions, you know, suddenly it's 80% women. You know, I think we need men to take ownership of this problem, to recognize it's an issue and to do something about it. You know, mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, I really think uh, in terms of dealing with, you know, what's going on in academic economics, I think, you know, we, we've been, you know, we've been doing some of these things for a long time. We've been putting the data out there. We've been doing the mentoring. The gap is closing, but it's, you know, it's slow. I guess if you've got two thirds of the staff are men and only 20% of them think that it's a problem, then you're, even if all the women think it's a problem, you're going to have not that representation equally of that view. And uh, But the RES, the, the Women's Committee, isn't just for women, right? The men have been on the committee. They and have, the yes. Maybe we need to recruit some more, I think. Well, we've got two here who uh, could be fully signed up. But I think just to broaden it out, think a little bit more generally about the labour market, the gender pay gap in the UK has been falling. It was like 40% in the, in the mid-70s. It's fallen to about 30% by the mid-90s, and now it's below kind of 20%. And during this time, female rates of employment have been going up a huge amount, uh, still not at the kind of 80% of, of men being employ employed. It's more like kind of 70% now. So does this pay gap partly come about because of employment choices and labor supply choices? Now, some of this is you know, going to be related to fertility and people take time out. So are we only really going to see more equality if patterns of work can be changed you know can can we do something about that so that so more, more, more generally um yeah so mine so i think there are sort of two key factors which have been identified in you know why women are still paid less than men one is to do with children so you know the work by henrik Claven and camille landais you know really neatly shows that you know for denmark men and women are paid the same and then up until the point at which they have their first child and then women's pay takes a dip and never recovers so clearly there are issues around Childcare, how childcare impacts on your earnings. I mean, it's interesting that that pattern is for Denmark. You know, we think of Denmark being very progressive, having excellent childcare. So, you know, maybe what we're seeing is a choice. Maybe this is what people want. So I think the next stage they were thinking of was, you know, well, actually, we know that, you know, when children come along, women actually become less happy or less satisfied. So, you know, because we see, you know, women with children being less satisfied than they were before, that suggests maybe it's not an optimal choice. But actually, you know, it's, it's coming about through, you know, social pressure. So, you know, there are wide social norms about what women should do when they have children. No one ever really asks general questions about whether men should work part-time when they have children, but attitudinal surveys typically are, should women work part-time? So clearly people in society have a view about what women should and shouldn't do. So I think the argument that, you know, this is just representing, you know, mother's natural maternal instincts, I think we have to question that when, you know, there are sort of social social norms around uh, childcare choices. The other factors you mentioned is occupational segregation. So actually it goes back to, you know, only 30% of people studying economics are women. Economics, we know, is a, is a subject that has incredibly high financial returns, you know, particularly at the top end. So, uh, outside academia. Outside, outside <laughs> yeah. Outside, well, even in academia, we know that economists are paid, you know, often paid quite a lot because it's, you know, it's a competitive... The outside option's higher, so it drags yeah, up exactly. the inside option. Yeah, so, you know, so I was looking at this. So if you look at the share of women in a, in a subject, so you've got things like engineering, computer science, economics, which have a very low share, and then you have psychology, social work, um, English, which have quite a high share. Um, and if you look at the earnings, basically, you know, 
subjects where uh, a lot of men, uh, a lot of men basically associated with high earnings, you know, even among the women and subjects where there are a lot of women tend to be associated with lower earnings. So clearly the fact that pe we can have very gendered subject choices and occupational choices is sort of allowing uh, gender differences in pay to persist. So I think, you know, I think if, you know, men and women were choosing the same subjects, the same occupations, then those gender pay gaps, you know, might, might well be lower. And some of, you know, some of these choices reflecting preferences, but again, some of these choices are reflecting, you know, the fact that uh, subjects and occupations seem to have gender identities, which I don't think are sort of just sort of reinforcing preferences and making, you know, making the sort of the split between men and women much more pronounced than I think it otherwise would be. And, you know, I think also we have to sort of think about, you know, implicit, implicit bias, how women are regarded. So, there was a very uh, sort of interesting set of quotes coming from people on senior boards. I think a while ago they were sort of talking about, you know, the progress in getting women onto senior boards and whether, you know, we needed quotas. Um, and they'd ask the men who are on these senior boards, you know, why, why don't you have more women? And the answers were really revealing. You know, they'd say things like, oh, well, you know, we've got one already. Or, you know, the issues involved are really quite complex and we're not sure that women would be able to cope with them, you know. So, you know, it's, it's the kind of quotes that are coming out in, yeah. in, 20, in 2018. Yeah. yeah, this was last year. So, yeah, you know, it's not too hard to kind of find evidence of implicit bias or unconscious yeah. bias, you know, if you look for it. So, yeah. So I think I think there's still some work to be done. Although, interesting, you know, I think this whole issue about getting firms to publish their gender pay gap is a huge step forward. You know, I think in Denmark, when they did this several years ago, it was actually instrumental in helping to close the gender pay gap. I think, you know, one, it's a sort of naming and shaming. But I think it's also, you know, it's opening up conversations, it's giving people power to challenge the status quo, and it's making people much more aware of really what's going on. So, you know, I think that was, a, I think that was a very positive move in terms of putting the information out there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, let's see how it evolves. I'm, I'm, I'm quite curious. I know certainly my wife was <laughs> looking at her, you know, company's gender pay gap very carefully. And you should have been looking at your company's gender pay gap very carefully, Franz. And you should have been complaining about it. I, I, I should say, I should say, I should say for the record, in, in my capacity, what I do, I always produce uh, gender diversity reports for yeah. my senior management team uh, or our senior management team, I should say. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> I feel like I'm on the spot here. <laughs> Sarah, listen, thank you very much. I guess one last question is, do you think, where do you think sort of, do you have any ideas or thoughts on sort of where future research might want to go with this? And there's obviously a plethora of research on this for many, many years. Is it perhaps at this point more about actually, like you were saying earlier, driving home that the result of that research into people's mind and creating impact rather than more research? Yeah, no, I think I think you were saying when you were sort of talking about um, the Bayer and Rouse article, you know, the things that they were suggesting are not new, but we seem to not yet sort of be making progress. Um, you know, I think... I think the the work of Heather Sarsons and Erin Hengel is in, has been incredibly powerful. So I think you know current and future research still matters. But personally, I think you know with the RES Women's Committee, I really think we need to kind of be thinking about what concrete steps we can take in order to try and address some of the problems. I said, you know, at the moment, one of my main areas to address is this issue of kind of outreach to schools. So I'm quite excited about that as well as you know trying to think about some of the barriers within uh, the academic sort of profession. Thank you, Sarah. That's been a really uh, interesting and important conversation. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Borsha. You've been listening to Policy Matters and we'll be back with more soon.